Hi everyone and welcome back to Infection Prevention in Conversation. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking to Dr Gonzalo Berman, Professor of Infectious Diseases at Virginia Commonwealth University and Editor-in-Chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology. Today we'll be discussing Dr Berman's distinguished career and focusing on his work on the impact of contact precautions in the control of endemic multi-resistant microorganisms within hospitals. So once again, thank you so much um, for joining us, um, Professor Beerman. Can I ask you, first of all, perhaps just to start by telling everyone a little bit about yourself, how you became an infectious diseases physician, and then more specifically, what led you to become interested in infection control? Sure. Well, uh, greetings, and thank you so much for inviting me. It's a huge honor, a pleasure. Thank you for that kind introduction. So yes, I'm Gonzalo Berman. I live in the United States. I was born in Argentina and raised in both countries. I live in Virginia now, and I'm a professor, as you said, of infectious diseases and internal medicine. My journey in infectious diseases was a little bit kind of uh, circuitous, and it was, I would also say it was a bit, uh, there was fortuitous at times that I came across the people that I did. After attending college in the United States, uh, I come from a family doctor, so I just thought the next thing to do was to go into medicine and was fortunate to be accepted at the University of Buffalo in the state of New York to study medicine there. And it wasn't until really the end of my first year, going into my second year of my medical studies, that I came across an advert looking for a research assistant in epidemiology. I knew nothing about epidemiology at all. And uh, it basically needed someone who was a student, who was free for eight weeks over the summer, was willing to take low pay for some long hours, and was bilingual, had to speak Spanish. And... You know, I fit the bill, took the job, and I actually was introduced to a gentleman named Dr. Robert or Roberto Jaén, who was, a, I think it was a family doctor, but an MD, PhD, and also I think had a Master of Public Health in Epidemiology. And he was doing an epidemiology study for the Center of Urban Research and Primary Care at the University of Buffalo on asthmatics, triggers for asthma in the inner city, really kind of in lower income populations in the city of Buffalo. And our job was to go back to these previous households and do kind of a capture or recapture interviews with them on triggers for asthma and various other things. And that was really my first look into the field of epidemiology, looking at population-based medicine. And then later that year, when I was back in classes, I think I went to the microbiology, parasitology lectures. And for the first time, I was almost coming out of my seat because something seemed really interesting. And the faculty at that time seemed very energetic. It must have been mid-40s, early 50s, really passionate about what they were doing, patients they were seeing, presenting great cases, wonderful images, domestic and travel, et cetera, et cetera, related to their work. And I was just, you know, it, it, it hit me like a fever. I was like, I was, I was ready to, to, to take off there. And uh, I just came across some really wonderful people during the course of the following years that pointed me in the right direction. If you want to be an infectious disease doctor, learn medicine get the best internal medicine training. When you get to internal medicine, okay, now you want to find a fellowship. You get to the fellowship, you find appropriate mentors that tell you like, well, you're not really a bench researcher. There's something called healthcare epidemiology. That might be a good fit for you. Let's speak with this gentleman over here. And that's exactly how it came to fruition. And before you knew it, uh, all those years passed and I was here at the University of Medical College of Virginia as an assistant professor, healthcare epidemiologist starting in 2003. Wow, so... Um, you're our first fully transatlantic guest on the podcast. Oh, so, 
in order to give some context to some of our like British and European listeners, can you tell us a little bit about the institution you work at, what it's like, so what the sort of environment is like? Because I think that gives a really good context to come on when we come on to talk about some of your research that you've published as well. Absolutely. So we are fully in health, a, a university healthcare system, which is largely funded by the state or the Commonwealth, Virginia, also private insurance, et cetera, et cetera. It is a service which is 100% run by university doctors, university surgeons and physicians. There's training programs, of course, for students, for residents, for fellows, or I guess we'll be registrars in the United Kingdom across essentially all the specialties and subspecialties. About 900 hospitals, 900 sorry, beds. So it's a large institution and it has a bone marrow transplant center, a trauma center, uh, certainly a large HIV center, which we're very proud to have here also. So it's a big institution and we get a lot of referrals from the Commonwealth of Virginia. So that lends itself to kind of an academic practice of medicine and certainly lends itself, the hospital lends itself as an appropriate laboratory for infection prevention, principles, practices, assessments, reassessments, and of course, publications. And can you tell us what most of your wards are like? Right, so we're very fortunate because most of the wards are single occupancy rooms. The ones that are not are maximal double occupancy rooms. But the majority of the rooms, and particularly in the intensive care unit, where, as you know, the patients are the most vulnerable, those are 100% single occupancy rooms, which we both know is hugely important for infection prevention matters. And we'll probably touch on this later, but it's an important driver for making some adjustments in certain infection prevention practices. Exactly. And and so the reason I wanted to invite you on the podcast was that I was up at 8 a.m. to watch your presentation at ECMID in Lisbon, looking at contact precautions and the evidence and the argument that you built during that 30 minutes was um, really, really interesting and really opened my eyes to a lot of your research and also research obviously you presented. And then further to that, in an earlier podcast that we recorded, um, some of the papers that you'd published that we can come on to talk about in a moment were included in the literature review for our MRSA guidelines. So that's what kind of triggered me to wanting to talk to you. Um, One of the things that you lay out is your sort of fundamental basics for things that um, infection control practitioners should be reviewing when they're making decisions about whether contact precautions are necessary in their own environment is looking at the difference between horizontal and vertical infection control measures. So I was wondering if you could just give us a brief overview of the differences for for sort of young infection control practitioners um, and how important you think they are within an institution at preventing healthcare acquired infections. Absolutely. So the her, the vertical and the horizontal approach to infection control is not a term that I coined. It was coined in this, in this institution by Professor Richard Wenzel and Professor Michael Edmund. Uh, and they've written a paper specifically on that as a, as a philosophical construct for infection prevention. But really what it comes down to is this. A vertical approach is really focused on one or two or whatever sort of pathogen is of importance and employs an active detection and isolation strategy. The classic one that was employed in the United States, and I think the Dutch have been really aggressive and successful with, is active detection and isolation of MRSA. The vertical approach essentially says, well, if we focus on minimizing transmission from the most common mechanism in a healthcare setting, we know that it's not airborne, it's not droplet, it's not food and water that we ingest in healthcare system, it's actually physical contact. But we focus on doing things that are bundle-specific, like washing our hands, respecting a central line catheter, a urinary catheter bundles, you will minimize the transmission of all 
all pathogens that are transmitted by the same common mechanism, which is contact. So by, by respecting or uh, doing the bundled care with fidelity or reliability, then you're really going to have a collateral benefit across all those pathogens. You don't necessarily need to isolate on top of it. Essentially, it's saying doing bundles plus standard precautions uh, with recognizing that the incremental benefit of contact precautions at the top, standard precautions with healthcare infection prevention bundles is probably not all that great, particularly in an endemic setting. Thank you. You've summarised that really beautifully. And, and the other thing that I took away from um, your presentation that you presented really clearly that I think sometimes as infection control practitioners, it's easy for us to lose sight of is all the adverse outcomes associated with isolation and contact precautions that aren't necessarily infective in nature. So some of the things that you spoke about, increasing falls incidents, increasing pressure ulcer incidents, patient satisfaction, the psychological impact on the patient. All of those things, there's a lot of evidence out there to show that can negatively affect the patient. So can you just um, elaborate on that a little bit for us? Well, I think that it, a lot of that really comes down to, to what motivates healthcare workers to go into patient rooms. Obviously, they're there to take care of patients. And when they see that there is a precaution, airborne contact droplet, then they will probably go in there less frequently. Now, we know from studies on the psychology of healthcare infection prevention, if someone is in tuberculosis, airborne precautions, I've never seen anyone not wear N95 masks to go take care of them. They won't cut corners, there, right? And they won't cut corners also when it's another infectious disease that's highly or potentially contagious to them. But when the risk is perceived to be low to them, they won't wear the the PPE properly, which is common, and or they just won't visit the patient as much. And, and that's been commonly reported. So by visiting the patient less frequently, then that lends itself to certain sorts of collateral dangers, such as not turning patients more frequently or appropriately, fewer visits by nurses and doctors. And that leads to have, have psychological impacts on patients. And we all know that the, the patient satisfaction, patient perception of staying is really important, particularly in this day and age when you're getting feedback by electronic mechanisms on patient stay, satisfaction, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a lot of variables here. Uh, and it, for many, it's still controversial, the kind of adverse consequences of contact precautions. But I believe that patients who are isolated are generally visited less frequently. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, that, and that to me was, it makes, it seems so obvious when you outline it like that. But I think sometimes you're so focused on actually preventing healthcare acquired infections or managing that outbreak that actually thinking about the ramifications that aren't related to infection we just need reminding of that every now and then I, I think you've you've summarized nicely and we'll come on to talk about the, the publications um in a minute um that go through um the investigation of discontinuation of of, of contact precautions can I ask before we start, can you outline for me where you think there are data gaps going forward and what kind of data you would like to see published in order to help close the loop of where, because it, it still seems like a somewhat controversial topic and there are still a lot of caveats about whether we could stop doing contact precautions in other institutions. I mean, what are the data gaps out there that you think need to be fulfilled before we could really look at changing our practice globally, looking at, at contact precautions? I think the major data gap is the kind of the prospective randomized, cluster randomized trial across multiple institutions showing a definitive benefit of 
contact precautions for endemic pathogens. As you may recall, there was the famous bug study, Benefits of Universal Gloving and Gowning, published by our colleagues from the University of Maryland. And, and, and that, that was a very important study, probably unimpeachable in terms of the methodology, but it showed very modest benefits to, to adding um, to add a, for contact precautions on top of standard practice. To my knowledge, since the publication of that study, no institution or very few institutions continue to use universal contact precautions in the ICUs. So that's a real data gap. The other data gap is really when we're dealing with outbreaks or non-endemic pathogens, what's the incremental benefit of mass contact precautions, isolation precautions? We don't know that yet. Uh, It seems like the best that we can do or we have right now are, are studies, the either single or several studies or several sites giving us interrupted time series analyses and continue to show that these things are not getting worse or there's a change in the already downgoing trends. And that's really what we're showing is that the trends of MRSA, VRE, and all device or healthcare-associated infections are going down regardless of the discontinuation of these these precautions. So there there are still some big gaps. And it's interesting because we have all just lived through a period where everybody has been using increased contact precautions because of the pandemic, right? And I feel that, um, I mean, we're just looking, for example, in our own institution at the moment, I'm just trying to to look at ICU hospital-acquired bacteremia and candidemias through the pandemic because our perception is that they have really increased in incidence. Absolutely. Um, so, so it's interesting because you would think soon, we're going, we, that data ha- I know we were all so, so very busy, so perhaps, you know, it wasn't prospective and and it wasn't planned in the way that one would hope. But you would think that we've all naturally lived through that experiment recently, haven't we? So something has got to come out of that. But I'm not sure what you think the ongoing implications of what we learned from the COVID pandemic might be. Yeah, so I think that the COVID pandemic has, in my opinion, it shows us what happens when you take your eyes off standard infection prevention bundles and you don't do them with reliability. Exactly. And that's why you're seeing these healthcare-associated infections despite universal use of contact precautions or near universal in many institutions. I think it's an also, also a potent reminder. This actually also reminds me of a newspaper that's well published here, maybe like three or four years ago, pre-pandemics. I'm certain nobody read it, but we just kind of wrote it anyway. It was about preventing healthcare-associated infections moving forward. And one of the things that we mentioned in the, edit, in the editorial is that you know, the infection prevention science is still very crude in many ways because we're not very good at preventing infections from our own microbiome. And our own microbiome, how do you prevent that? How do you prevent gut translocation? Even with the best care of catheters, whether urinary or intravenous catheters, how do we prevent the translocation of, of transient, not sorry, a resident flora on the skin uh, to cause a bloodstream or a urinary infection? So we're still going to be very challenged. And as you know now, as patients are getting older, more infirm, there's greater immunosuppression, greater therapies, particularly for immune-modulating therapies, this is going to become increasingly more challenging. We still don't have a good grasp of how to control or prevent infections from our own microbiome, which is probably at least 60% of them. Yeah, and, and in a way, the hospital environment, the ward environment, it is one large microbiome, isn't it? You know, Absolutely. each each unit has its own challenges, its own problems, its its own endemic flora. And your knowledge of that within your own institution is is crucial, isn't it, really? Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to move on now to to talk about a couple of the um, 
publications that you've authored, which go to look in much more detail at the impact of discontinuing contact precautions on endemic pathogens, um, MRSA and VRE in, in these instances. So um, the first one was published in June 2018 in Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology. It's titled The Impact of Discontinuing Contact Precautions for MRSA and VRE an interrupted time series analysis. And then following that um, more multi-centre approach, but a similar design, if you will, um, published in 2020, the American Journal of Infection Control, um, stopping the routine use of contact precautions for management of MRSA and VRE at three academic medical centres, an interrupted time series analysis. Essentially, I'll, I'll focus slightly more on the second one because it encompasses more data across more sites. But um, you as authors um, aim to, to look at the impact of discontinuing contact precautions on the background, as you've said, to continuing a good foundation with a, a good bedrock of universal precautions such as bare below the elbows and hand hygiene. But you then looked at what the impact of stopping contact precautions were using a retrospective multi-centre interrupted time series. And this was this was data from a, a really long time frame, so 2002 to 2017, and as I've said, across three hospitals. So could, could you just um, perhaps summarise what the main findings were and what you think the implications of those are for IPC practitioners? I think, well, in full disclosure, if I, I want to go rewind just a little bit to tell you what, yeah, how we... Yeah, of course. This is really important. Back in 2013, we actually gathered up the courage here in this institution to discontinue contact precautions for endemic MRSA and VRE. And then we just did a before-after comparison like a year or two before, the year after, et cetera, et cetera. Published it. It wasn't well-received, not at all. It was. It was it had a lot of inherent limitations being single-center, just before-after, quasi-experimental. We even got some not-so-favorable messages saying like you guys have a blatant disregard for patient safety or unethical, those kinds of things. So that led us to the interrupted time series studies. We wanted to do something or greater rigor and better methodology. And then through the, I guess the, the epidemiology grapevine here, we learned that, you know, hey, UCLA, that's not too shabby. That's a big institution. University of Massachusetts, that's pretty well known too. They're doing the same thing. And we were doing this unbeknownst to each other. And I think it was like, let's pull our data together and take a look at it from slightly more robust methodology, the interrupted time series. Essentially what we learned is that not all of us were doing the different, the same the same interventions at the same time, but we all believe in horizontal infection prevention strategies. And with that, we were able to, to demonstrate or show via the ITS methodology that the downgoing trends of healthcare associated infections, which were already in place, were not adversely affected either MRC or VRE or all pathogens after we discontinued infections. So and that's really the take home message. It's not that the discontinuation caused the downgoing trend. It's just the ongoing trend had no negative impact on the slope of an already decreasing rate of infection, which would suggest that the strategies being employed are safe and are ongoing effective in reducing HAIs and have no negative impact on VRE or MRSA. Now, we have been criticized saying, again, that's just an ITS, interrupted time series, just still a decent methodology, but you don't have any long-term longitudinal follow-up on what about individuals who were discharged from those three hospitals and went elsewhere and you never captured them. That may be possible. I know that in the case, at least in the case of Virginia Commonwealth University, we are generally the safety net healthcare system here in this part of Virginia. So people are generally readmitted back to us and don't mm -hmm. go to the private hospital down the street. Mm -hmm. and, and interestingly, I mean, what you're really saying there is that 
discontinuing contact precautions was non-inferior to Correct. continuing them. But, but actually, you could go a little bit further than that. I mean, in the first study of the two that I mentioned, um, when you actually remove contact precautions, you did reduce device-related healthcare-required infections. We did, but now, I think that was a reliability on, on just the, on the bundles and being aggressive with following and measuring the bundles. So you think that was related to background fundamental work that you were doing to build the general oh. IPC infrastructure in your hospital at that time? Okay, that's interesting. And, and have you ever considered or have you ever looked at the cost savings? Ah, I'm happy that you asked that. Thank you so much. The, uh, so there's cost savings in terms of, of infections averted. And I think we published a paper on that. And I'm going to be a little fuzzy on Actually, I know we published a paper on that. I'm fuzzy on all the details. But I do want to give you something I think was an important cost savings that was very popular. And this was actually replicated also by UCLA independently. So it's nice when your work is replicated by someone else. So when we stopped our, in our initial study, stopping uh, contact precautions, we saved about 700,000 US dollars a year just in gowns and gloves. Super, 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 super well received by the administration of the institution. The UCLA team reported like 650,000 or close to that same amount of cost savings just per annum on, on, um, on gowns and gloves. The other thing, which is not necessarily cost savings, let's just call it healthcare, healthcare worker satisfaction. We actually did do a survey of the staff on this change. It was enormously popular with the nursing staff. I'm not at all surprised. We all know that if the nurses like it, you're in. That's really important. So the nurses don't like the practice. If you're trying to do an infection prevention program, it's going to be tough to get it done. They're really the frontline providers and the prior greatest champions of healthcare-assisted infection prevention. So all of the things that I mentioned at the outset that we know can be negatively affected by contact precautions or isolations, such as um, falls, pressure sores. Did you ever look at the knock-on effect of whether they were positively impacted by removing contact precautions? So we have not formally assessed that. And that's probably one of our weaknesses that we, we should come back around to that now that we have more data. And uh, thank you for bringing that up. I got to bring that back to the research team. You've, <laughs> you've, you've lit a fire under me, so thank you. I don't know about within your institution, but certainly within mine, the, the data would already be there because every time there's a, a fall in hospital, certain documentation has to be completed. Every time a pressure saw is acquired in hospital. So that data probably would already be there. Yeah, that's correct. We'd have to go back through enterprise analytics and look back at it. But the one small snag we have here is that I think in December, December of 21, we had a new electronic medical record instituted. So now we have two systems and it's metaphorically kneecapped. Yes. <laughs> We've been cut at the knees there on that one a little bit. The final um publication that I just wanted to talk about because I thought it added a, a nice extra dimension um to discuss with you. Um, was a, a publication that you authored in Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology in 2019, looking at the impact of discontinuation of contact precautions on central line-associated bloodstream infections in a children's hospital. And I wanted to bring that up because I think possibly there are some specific issues related to, to paediatrics and the difficulty of infection control um, and preventing transmission of organisms within, within a paediatric population. Um, so essentially, um, your design was similar. Um, it was a quasi-experimental before and after study, looking at discontinuation of contact precautions, again, with MRSA and BRE. And again, you found that there was no difference in the rates of MRSA and BRE, CLABC, before and after discontinuation of contact precautions. Do you think there's any considerations within the paediatric population or, or differences, things that we might want to think about before making sort of blanket approaches for our entire hospital populations? So absolutely. So 
Uh, that, thank you for bringing that up. I haven't thought about that publication in a handful of years. And the lead author was, was Dr. Emily Godbelt, who unfortunately isn't with us in this institution anymore. She did some beautiful work in pediatric infection prevention. And for us, that was kind of a new frontier because not, not many individuals were looking into pediatric infection control contact precautions, CLABSI bundles. So what we learned is that, um, that many of the principles that we're applying in adult infection prevention and control are applicable, of course, in pediatrics. There was one really important factor that this is me not being a pediatrician, learning about it, and really kind of being part of the journey, is implementing bathing of kids, pediatric patients, with chlorhexidine. I'm not sure what the status is in the United Kingdom or in the European Union, but in the United States, chlorhexidine baths were not approved for like neonates and very young children. And we had to get around that and essentially put it, make it happen. And we saw significant impacts on infection control outcomes. So I honestly feel that the CHG bathing, the CHG preparations around the exit or the catheter exit site are critically important for decreasing collapses, whether in adult and pediatric populations. And I really think that along with fidelity with bundles is really important in pediatrics. Yeah, I mean, I could see um, from some of the context that um, authors gave in the background of that paper that also, again, you're in a sort of somewhat luxury situation, I suppose, of being able to have single rooms mostly Correct. on your PICU and neonatal units, which is something that, um, unfortunately, we're far from in some of the institutions that I work in and have worked in in the past. And when I think back to some of the outbreaks I've been involved with in those institutions, they are the really, really, the, the ones on those neonatal units where the, the cots aren't quite as far apart as you'd like them to be. Um, and, you know, particularly when we've units that have had issues with, with waterborne pathogens or, or drain, possibly drain-associated pathogens, it's incredibly difficult to control those on those units. Um, is there anything, lastly, you would like to say about contact precautions and that, that I haven't brought up from my summaries or my background reading on you? I, I think your summaries have been absolutely beautiful, so thank you so much. Uh, I guess my take on contact precautions, it's still not like a destination. It's kind of a journey. We're learning yeah. more and more uh, as we as we move along. And there was a, a great editorial that was published, I think, in the Journal of Possible Infection, last year on, on contact precautions and time for us to rethink it. And you know, the, edit, the editorial being, of course, you know, what additional benefit uh, does this add? I think that's really where we as infection prevention professionals and uh, you know, health providers or experts in infection prevention, if you will, need to, should continue to focus some of our efforts to answer those important questions. And that's exactly when, when I said that one of your papers um, had been mentioned in an extremely complimentary light by uh, Professor Wilson during our MRSA podcast. That is exactly one of the points that she was making. And I don't want to paraphrase what she said, but I think she was saying that, you know, the challenges in infection control are measuring the incremental tiny differences made when one part of one bundle is paused and another part of the bundle is introduced, you know, picking apart the incremental benefits of one action when you've got so many things that are a myriad of interventions to prevent a myriad of outcomes, because it's all very well concentrating on MRSA, isn't it? But, you know, if you've got a CPE issue at your hospital or, a, you know, sure. it's a constant battle of prioritising what you're trying to fight at that time, isn't it? So, and I think that is what makes it so difficult, but so academically challenging and, and fascinating for us. Yeah, and I also think it's an important, like, cautionary tale of of the. You have to, we have to be careful of clinging too tightly to paradigms. 
Now, I understand the value of the paradigm. It helps us with clarity and kind of show a path. But sometimes, you know, the paradigm is not entirely founded on the highest science. And when we look or delve more deeply into the elements of that paradigm, we realize there may be some things that we just take on faith. And if that's the case, you know, we need to be humble with ourselves and say, okay, maybe what we're doing could be wrong. And when it's challenged, it's not a challenge that one should take personally as an investigator or an infection prevention professional, but to take a step back almost dispassionately and say, does this provide something new? Are we learning something new that could, could result in practice change? I mean, I think that we're all driven to, to be an infection prevention, essentially to try to help others. It's, I've always seen it as, as very, very, very consistent with the first tenet of medicine, which is do no harm, primum non necessary. So whatever we can do to add, you know, fortify that tenet of medicine in our practice of infection prevention, the population level, that's where we should be going in a way that's humble and not getting offended if someone questions your work. The work is there to be questioned and it should be questioned. I think that's one thing that became um, really apparent to me, or I feel like the floodgates were opened as such during the pandemic, because for the first time, I felt like clinicians were really challenging us. Well, what is the evidence that this that I don't need to wear my respirator and that my surgical face mask is sufficient? And what is the evidence that this is aerosol transmission versus droplet? Tra- and these kind of terms that perhaps previously general physicians or surgeons that we work with might not have been so challenging about. All of a sudden, everybody became a sudden overnight expert in these things yeah. that previously were very much the remit of, you know, microbiologists, infectious disease, infection control practitioners and virologists. So um, I think that's one thing that really came out of the pandemic. You had to really make sure you were well armed in those kind of conversations with your colleagues and, and ready to be challenged and think, OK, I'm, I'll go and look that up or, yeah, you know, maybe that's a gap in our knowledge. Yeah. I, I think that to, to carry on to that important point is that when we're addressing our colleagues or even the public in matters of infection prevention or public health, essentially we should say we should be clear about really three things, right? This is what we know. This is what we don't know. And here are the assumptions that we're using right now for our action items. Mm-hmm. And if we learn new things and the assumptions are challenged and new data arise, then we make an adjustment. Yeah. I've always felt that being very transparent about those things are very helpful. Interestingly, I just kind of reminded me, talk, talking about transparency in medicine, I read an editorial in a medical journal talking about, you know, how to improve patient satisfaction when they come to the clinic. Now, we all know what it's like to go to a clinic or to a busy health center. There's more people in the waiting room than there are rooms to, you know, to how to, to see them. There are not enough doctors and nurses. Everyone's frustrated, et cetera, et cetera. So one group did a very simple experiment. They basically did, when the patient arrived, they would say to them, we're running a little behind. We're deeply sorry. The doctor will be with you, et cetera, et cetera. And then the doctor said the same script. Very sorry to keep you waiting. It's been very busy, but I'm happy to see you. And then on the way out, they say, again, we're very sorry to have you know, kept you waiting, et cetera, et cetera. And the satisfactions shot up. So it's that level of transparency, like, listen, things are rough right now. We're doing the best we can. That carries over to other things like infection prevention. Like, we don't really know this is a new pathogen. Doing the best we can, this is what we know, what we don't know. Here's our assumptions. Make some changes as we learn more. It's managing expectation, isn't it? Absolutely. You said it much more succinctly than me, so thank you. But I mean, but I mean, you, you get it all the time in like the private sector or the commercial sector. Um, you have your expectation managed subtly all the time, but I don't think we're very good at doing that in healthcare. 
Right. I think we, we, we always want to be there to serve people and we don't necessarily say, listen, we're doing the best we can, mm-hmm. but we're really short staffed. I'll happy yeah. to see you, but it might be to our weight. Yeah, Not exactly. Set, and set. Lastly, I just wanted to come on to something that's um, very left field and a different topic completely, but you two are an editor in chief of a journal. Okay. How have you found the pandemic? How have you found your editorial role during the last few years? So I'm very fortunate because I became the editor-in-chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship Healthcare Epidemiology, which is a publication of SHEA, the Society of Healthcare Epidemiology of America, mm-hmm. which is really a second publication because they already have infection control hospital mm-hmm. epidemiology. So they launched that. We were launched from the pandemic. It, it could have gone two potential ways, right? It could have been like, everyone's burned out and tired. I don't want anything to do anymore with this stuff. Yeah. Or this is new. This is exciting. This is a new venue. This is like the tabula rasa, you know, the white sheet. You can do whatever you want with it to explore themes and in infection prevention and healthcare yeah. and antimicrobial stewardship. And it was that. So it was a tremendous outpouring of support, of enthusiasm, members of the antimicrobial stewardship and infection prevention really community, not only in North America, you know, also from the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. also from Europe, uh, also from South America, and also from Asia. So we've had a really great support. And you see that a lot of the papers coming in are COVID-related, many are, but they're also coming back to the whole concept of recentering ourselves in infection. How do we go back to the level of rigor that we had before the pandemic? How do we take the lessons learned from the pandemic, uh, not only in infection prevention, but also in antimicrobial stewardship? And, And this was actually very right for antimicrobial stewardship, as you know, with the pandemic, there was an explosion of potential pharmaceutical agents to treat and manage COVID. And that led to an entire body of literature related to the role of stewardship programs in overseeing therapeutics for COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, I think actually probably there's a lot of analogies that can be drawn. So IPIP, the journal that I'm editor-in-chief for, is also the second journal of the, of the Healthcare Infection Society. So an open access journal, but it launched... Um, at the beginning of 2019. So um, it it was very, very challenging few years um, because just, for example, finding reviewers, um, and this is a plea to any listeners that want to review articles for us, please make yourself known to us. <laughs> um, because obviously everyone's just so, so busy during those I, few I years. I feel your pain on that. The reviewers is very difficult to find. Um, but um, okay, yeah. So, it's, but but it's given me lots of fantastic opportunities, like this one, for example. So, um, yeah, it's 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 been a great for my CPD for my professional development. So, yeah, it's it's a great role that I've really really enjoyed, and a whole new skill set that I've had to kind of go on a steep learning curve to to adapt to. But it's been absolutely fantastic. So, um, yeah. Carry on that. This the the, the role and the skill set. I think it's it's re- what I found was most interesting. What I found really, really beautiful about being an editor-in-chief is the amazing collaborations you can have with associate editors and others. And you realize just how creative people are if you give them a little room and give them a I mean, the creativity is amazing, such that really the output is greater than the sum of the parts. It's really amazing. Yeah, it it has. It's it's really allowed me to, to meet people I never would have met to um, yeah, work alongside colleagues nationally and internationally that I would not have come across in my day-to-day work. Um, and also, yeah, just have a, because 
we talk a lot about the strategy for the journals and it's fantastic also to think you know the things that I've thought about that I never would have thought about before like some of the infection control challenges around lower and middle income countries you know um, healthcare acquired malaria you know those kind of things you know that are just we just never face we just never face in our day-to-day work so um yeah it's been fantastic and yeah I, I always say that I would encourage it to anyone um who and great for your CPD because you get to read so many papers <laughs> that's right I think I'm running the toner and printer faster than ever before I just want to thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast you've been a fantastic guest um and yeah is there anything you want to say before I wrap it up uh, it's been a huge pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting with you and had a nice discussion about contact precautions. And uh, again, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm honored. You're more than welcome. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And I really, really hope you've all enjoyed today's podcast. We'll be back with another podcast next week. But in the meantime, you can keep up to date with us and the podcast. Uh, and even further, the Healthcare Infection Society in general, by following us on Twitter at, at JHI Editor or at IPIP underscore open. Finally, please like uh, and support and subscribe to Infection Prevention in Conversation via your usual podcast channels. Thank you very much.